watchers in the fourth dimension. I get the impression they don't know where they're heading for. Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley, and we're all guests of Madame Guillotine. And with that, a very special welcome to our first-time listeners. You can find our previous episodes on the podcasting app of your choice. And welcome back to those who are returning to us. This week, we're... As you might have guessed from Riley's intro, going to be talking about the eighth serial, The Reign of Terror. And as usual, we will start with a little bit of a historical context. What is the most important thing to keep in mind about this story is in the years prior to this, we have seen revolutions sweep across Asia. China has fallen to the communists, the Vietnam War is going on. The US is very concerned about the domino theory. And so we're talking about an earlier revolution, but it's still that very basic instinct that revolution is going on. One of the things that the West would not have been aware of at the time, just because of the secrecy, is that the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Communist Party had had a big falling out. So things weren't quite as rosy as they seemed behind the Iron Curtain. That's really the uh, background we're seeing. It's by, by the time this story finished broadcasting, in fact, I think it was maybe a, a few days before the last episode broadcast, President Johnson declared the Vietnam War as a must-win war and that losing South Vietnam would mean losing all of Southeast Asia. So uh, that's very much on the forefront of everyone's mind at the time. So with that, we have this wonderful little story. Well, I say little, it's six episodes about the French Revolution. This one was originally intended to be the season opener for the second season. Uh, it was actually brought forward to close out the first season. The story actually saw the very first pieces of location filming for the show. One thing to keep in mind here is the story itself was directed by Henrik Hirsch. However, while they were recording episode three, he became ill and had to be replaced. The documentation around the episode and the production assistant Tim Coombe claim that John Gorry, who directed The Keys of Marinus, took over as director for episode three, but John Gorry doesn't remember this, so that's interesting. The story itself was written by Dennis Spooner. This was the first of four scripts that he would directly contribute to Doctor Who. And in a few stories' time, he'll go on to succeed David Whittaker as the story editor. He's well known for his blend of humour and drama in his stories. And uh, he'll also work on other cult shows, most notably The Avengers, as almost everyone else in British TV seems to at this time. The director was Henrik Hirsch, who was actually a very accomplished theatre director, but this was his first major television job. And he had a lot of friction with Billy Hartnell and collapsed from nervous exhaustion, which uh, explains his absence from episode three. The music uh, was composed by Stanley Myers, and this was his first and only contribution to Doctor Who and only his third ever television composer job. However, he will go on to posthumously win a BAFTA for his work on Middlemarch in 95. And he was also nominated for his work on Wish You Were Here in 1987. He was nominated for a Saturn Award on The Witches in 1990 and picked up an award for Best Artistic Contribution at the Cannes Film Festival for Prick Up Your Ears in 1987. So he is very well established later on in life. So it's kind of cool to see someone who would really go on to do great things so early in his career on Doctor Who. And the designer on this was Roderick Lang. This was his first and only contribution to Doctor Who and his career would end a few years later in 1970, having done nothing further of note. 
So we're going to delve into the story and we'll start with our usual plot summary that this week, or this time, I should say, is in the hands of Julie. The doctor tries to abandon our favorite teachers before they trick him into seeing them off. Unfortunately, this only seems to land the, all four of them into the reign of terror. After numerous arrests, escapes, near-death experiences, illnesses, revelations of surprise allies and enemies, introductions of famous historical figures, creepers hitting on Barbara, blunt force trauma, and offers of wine, the doctor and his companions find themselves back in the TARDIS safe and sound, but unsure where they are going next. Love it. A lot of the same stuff happened multiple times. <laughs> but it was done so enjoyably. Was it? So before we actually get into the nitty gritty of the story, let's deal with the elephant in the room. There are two missing episodes in this six episode story, and we had options on how to watch. So how did everyone deal with those missing episodes? Did we do animation? Did we do the recon? I want to hear this. I did animation. Okay. I did animation as well. I did the BBC like approved animation. The one that was on the DVD? Yeah, yeah. And Julie? I did it as well. I figured I should watch the official, quote unquote. I'm going to be the different one. I did the loose cannon reconstruction, mostly because I've seen the animation before and I didn't like the style of it. So I decided to go with the way I had watched it the last time I did a marathon. So I guess we'll talk about the merits of each when we get to those two episodes. Let's go ahead and get started. We have the TARDIS landing silently, and the Doctor thinks, following the cliffhanger from the Sensorites, that he has got Ian and Barbara back to 20th century Earth and is going to throw them out. He's not big on goodbyes. Well, even That is true. And even before that, what I found interesting is it's a different opening than we've seen the last few serials because it doesn't immediately jump on them in the TARDIS. It actually has like that opening scenescape, which is more reminiscent of the first serial. So I found that a little interesting. Oh, where we get that quick shot of the two guys that we eventually meet in the house. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of cool. And of course, we then head towards the goodbye. And I absolutely love that conversation and the way that Ian and Barbara really turn on the charm when talking to the doctor, who just wants to take off and go and explore the universe. And they persuade him to go for a drink with them. I just love that. I mean, you dragged us off through time and space, having initially kidnapped us. Uh, goodbye, but let, let's go grab a pint first. Why not? Butter him up a bit. And steal the TARDIS. <laughs> yes, obviously steal the TARDIS. I mean, it's a little bit, hey, see us off, and a little bit, we don't trust that you actually got us where we need to go. So we're going to make sure that we're in the right spot. Yeah. Doesn't the doctor come around to their idea that he may not have brought them back? Yeah, he very begrudgingly comes around to that. And, and it's funny because all I could think of when I saw that was cannot upset grandpa about his driving. It really gets him upset. <laughs> Even though he probably should have his license confiscated. Probably. The trick is to just steal the license from when they're not looking. They're old. They won't know. Watchers in the fourth dimension would like to apologize to any elderly <laughs> listeners that we have. <laughs> Speaking of which, and them questioning Susan is the first one to actually, once they're out of the TARDIS, really express doubt when she doesn't see any lights. And then we hear gunshots. So, I mean, obviously, they're not in 1964 England. So why didn't they turn around immediately and go? Because then the story wouldn't have happened. It's that spirit of adventure. I would love to have seen like a character play on that, which let's go and see how far off the doctor was this time of getting us home. So we can just rub his face in it. I wish there'd been some dialogue <laughs> like that. That would have been fantastic. 
oftentimes I feel like sci-fi has this problem in which it's it's too focused on wanting to to need something outside of the characters to move the plot along. Use the characterization. I agree. One thing that's changed is as soon as Ian and Barbara realize they're not home after their encounter with the boy who tells them they're in France and before they can find the year out, he runs off. But they're not actually disappointed. They're clearly starting to enjoy their travels, which is quite a change from those early stories. They've developed Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> and then we do what we always do. We're going to split up. Not really a good idea. Every damn time. So they find this country house. For once, it's not necessarily Barbara discovering things and driving the plot because Ian's the one who notices the juxtaposition of that fancy candlestick with the rustic house, which doesn't quite jive. Susan's the one who finds all of the goodies in there. Ian puts all of the elements together and figures out that there is at a stopping point an escape route in the middle of the French Revolution. I found it strange that they gave that to the science teacher and not the history teacher, but I guess Ian had to have his time. They did give Barbara the title drop, though. And also, we have Susan revealing that the Doctor's favourite period in the history of Earth is the Reign of Terror. Why? <laughs> it's not backed up at all. Well, and if you think about it, you go back to An Unearthly Child. There's that scene in the classroom where Susan starts reading the book on the French Revolution and she says, Oh no, that's not right. The assumption I always got from that was that they had been there. So now they're actually there, so quite a nice way to kind of bookend the season, even if it wasn't intended. Clearly, this isn't their first time. Kind of make the assumption that Susan is saying that it's the Doctor's favourite period, having been there already. I think as we see over the course of the story, he's clearly having an absolute ball, even if no one else is. His initial, like, first two, three episodes are really, I think, the best part of this entire serial. It's just a fun little frolic with the Doctor, you know, that first little bit is just really enjoyable exactly so they're in this house two people Rouvre and dargerson show up you know i think for the most part we've noticed in a lot of these stories so far in season one certainly post the edge of destruction you know you meet characters in the first episode and they're kind of stick around for the rest of it as the the guest sidekicks for for the story and that's not what happens here not so much no no, we are completely subverting expectations. Well, so much for that guy. He seemed pretty cool. Gone. Yeah, so we have soldiers show up and they and Rouvray and Dargerson immediately get brutally murdered. Yeah, they didn't really last very long. It lasted long enough to knock the doctor out and inconvenience the TARDIS crew. Yeah, so because the Doctor is unconscious upstairs, Ian, Barbara, and Susan downstairs, once the soldiers storm the house, they're taken off to Paris to face the guillotine, and then the soldiers decide to burn the house down with the Doctor inside. This took a very strange turn, very quickly. A very brutal turn. But it looked really good. It did. It looked really good. I like that it showed, like, smoke being a little bit more of a problem than the fire itself, because you don't always get that. That's true. And I really love the the, the cliffhanger at the end. The the doctor and the fire. fire. Like, it was good. We end the episode with the child seeing the burning house. Hmm, I wonder who's going to rescue the doctor. I will say I really liked the music. It really feels like it was composed to go along with the action and not just hear some stuff to go in the background. I'll also discuss Doctor's theme because (laughs) his theme is the best. I I have one word for that theme, and that word is jaunty. (laughs) Speaking of of the music, it's interesting to see 
what my favorite critics say about that. And they're really quite divided. Like I immediately have the feeling that's how we're going to be when we rate this story. Sandifer hates this story and everything about it, including the music. The music is fine. It's enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's actually quite a change compared to the type of music we've had previously. As we mentioned before, it sounded like it was actually composed for this as opposed to just being like incidental yeah. music. That's just, oh, we just needed to throw something in there as opposed to this is actually like, oh, this person has like a theme that is played multiple times. And, you know, oh, we're driving up the, you know, the suspense uh, a, a bit more. So I think it just, again, with what we learned about this composer is that he was very good at what he does uh, to be up for awards like Bath's. So I think it just showed that they got someone of real talent on that. Given the limited BBC budget, they were lucky to find someone so talented so early in his career where he wouldn't be like, oh, well, I'm just too good for this quaint sci-fi show we discussed the location shooting it's just a really nice pleasant change from the previous couple episodes and it's just good to see some wide open spaces i agree little fun fact on that most of the location shots are of the doctor walking down you know little pathways and so on through the countryside that was where he regenerated into a stunt double i was gonna say that's not actually william hartnell that's one of my favorite shots from this entire serial when he's like you know going down the path and lined with trees I swear I thought I was about to see like an animated bird like land on his shoulder. Very kind of Mary Poppins style. So the, the gentleman actually walking down those pathways is a, is, is a guy by the name of Brian Proudfoot. He attended all of the studio recordings so he could like actually learn William Hartnell's movements. And <laughs> Carol Ann Ford is on record of her, as having said that this was something that really annoyed Billy. <laughs> he found this very, very irritating. That's good. I believe it, but I, I love it at the same time. So, I mean, you always get the feeling he's a cantankerous dude, even, even, even if he's, he's not, not the, the first, first doctor. doctor. Yeah. Incidentally, just going back to what I was saying about the division amongst the critics, Rob Shimon loves the music in this one. He absolutely adores it. He talks about how it kind of sends you off on a false sense of security, that the story might be something of a, a romp because the music's kind of jaunty at times. Then everything just gets grim. Rob Shimon loves that kind of misdirection. So it's kind of nice to see them all disagreeing and having different thoughts on on this story. So we're into episode two, which starts with that shot of the guillotine where initially it's still and then suddenly it comes down and then we meet the prison warden. I have actually a few things to say about this whole thing. I, I might have looked up a little bit on the French Revolution when it took the warden two seconds to say, you know what, you're going to die by the guillotine. I was like, that seemed a little bit immediate. They don't even know who these people are. And at first I was like, well, it could have very well been that they just kind of said it to everybody. But then I, I wanted to take a look. From my research, I found that people who were arrested, there was about 300,000 people arrested, but only 17,000 actually died of the guillotine. That was about 5.6% people died by the guillotine versus those who were arrested. And that was for the entirety of France. I actually find it very surprising that like they just walk in and like two seconds later it's like uh hey you're dead i agree it felt like a scene from the life of brian where it's just like everyone's like crucifixion 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 <laughs> you know the fact that they're british didn't come up yeah that's an interesting point and i mean they're british but also if you listen to everyone else everyone else is british too <laughs> they're the most british french people i've ever heard ever i know i find it interesting 
that you were bothered by them immediately being sentenced to death. And I found myself <laughs> bothered by the little kid saying that Paris was 10 kilometers away. <laughs> so much that I looked it up because every every unit of distance they refer to in this is kilometers, which wasn't adopted by the French Revolution until 1795. And this takes place in 1794. It's stupid. It doesn't matter. But there it is. <laughs> Honestly, I also read up on this. And before they adopted kilometers, every single town had their own units of distance. So I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, nothing was standardized. Please. Please tell me you've got some of those terms of those units of measurement. Sadly, I do not. Everything was measured in proud feet, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think maybe something was measured in cubits. <laughs> so after they're sentenced within two seconds, then they're off jail. The jailer guy is hitting on Barbara. Hey, how often do you think he really gets to get out and meet people? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, he was probably like complains about being lonely and his friends say, you know, have you ever thought about trying to meet somebody from work? They didn't have jailers only back then. <laughs> this was his only chance. But I find it interesting that it was Barbara and not Susan. They write Susan as if she's about eight years old. That's why. Yeah, basically. Yeah, but eight year old when they were being were married off. True. That's also true. Probably not a good message to send in 1964, no matter what Jimmy Savile was up to. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he obviously realizes how absolutely glorious Barbara is and, you know, knows a, a good thing when he sees it. If you're picking a, a, a mate, you're, 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 going, you're going with Barbara. She's strong. You know, she's a scrapper. She's a fighter. Susan... Not so much. And Barbara has amazing backcombing. <laughs> we are then treated to that lovely little scene that I really enjoyed where Barbara and Susan in the cell are reminiscing on previous times that they've been locked up together. It's a nice little way of, of recapping effectively some of the story so far. They really should be used to it by now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every time there's a few things are going to happen. They're going to lose access to the TARDIS. Someone's going to lock them up. They're going to join sides with whatever side doesn't lock them up and try to kill them. It's true, but then, like, Susan got really down. Oh. She had that line that she was like, you can't go on being lucky, and it's just like, Susan. She went beyond useless and into just utterly depressing. She finally discovered nihilism. We all do that as teenagers eventually. Not just teenagers. <laughs> But we did have a good moment with Barbara in the cell, noticing that the wall was wet and then making her own pry bar. Because Barbara is intelligent. She is. I absolutely love what she's doing there because it's all done with actual optimism and not desperation. It's not like, oh my God, I'm going to die. It's, oh, hey, this is here and it might actually help us escape. Let's give it a try. I, I love that. But then Ian is in a different cell. Ian gets caught up in the plot. He seems to very quickly develop a bromance with this dude who barely speaks. He's dying. You cut him some slack. And he tells him about this bloke called James Sterling, and then he dies. <clears throat> he also speaks a lot of French words. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. More this French words great. than anyone in the entire serial are spoken by the English guy. <laughs> Tavern he tells him to go to. The French name he gives him is not the same name that Ian then translates it to in English a few episodes later. <laughs> Gonna point out that minor inconsistency. So obviously no one's allowed to have friends in this story. Well, you don't know if they're actually your friends. Or they just die really quickly. Yeah, one or the other. And so after this, we cut to the doctor on his journey across the country where he's having the best time. This is the best bit of the entire serial. 
Yes, it is. Absolutely. This is the best story. That music is, oh, he's just walking down the lane and the music is so daunting. It's beautiful. I love it. And, you know, he comes across this foreman. He yells at him. He says, good day to you, sir, which... <laughs> Is just fantastic. I always loved the memes around that and to have the doctor actually say that, I, I, I fanboyed <laughs> a bit. And then that kind of all falls apart on him and he gets impressed into working, so. But he gets out of it, which leads to the, the second bludgeoning of this serial. <laughs> but at least he didn't kill him. So he's come a long way from the guy who was willing to cave someone's skull in. He was very enthusiastic about whacking him. He was. Oh, and but between those, between the, the impressing into working and, and the, the whacking, we get a cutscene to Susan and Barbara, where we have a Susan freakout. Yay! <laughs> Is this the one from the rats? Yeah. Okay. Yep. But also, at the same time, we had seen that Ian was going to be saved by the guillotine. We did. Yeah, Le Maître crosses him off the list. I guess Susan would rather not deal with the rats and get executed than, you know, stay alive. You know, the rats might have the, the plague, so she might have died anyway. True. We can but hope. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Vicious. So yeah, we, we end the episode with Susan and Barbara, Barbara being, being sent for execution. Right. And the doctor being five kilometers yeah, right away from Paris. Grabbing some breeze, skipping down the lane. <laughs> 37,000 fat rabbits away <laughs> from Paris. <laughs> and of course, we move into episode three, A Change of Identity, and we meet two new, new characters. Are they dead yet? They're just pining for the fjords. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, actually, before we meet our, our two new characters, we get more of Susan being useless. Because Barbara's all like planning an escape. And Susan has a headache. Hey, Susan is coming down with something, okay? I mean, it is the 60s. She might just be coming down. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, if there's anything a guillotine is good for, it'll take care of your headache. There's a great line in, um, in an episode of Blake 7. One of the characters is complaining about a horrendous headache, and one of the others just very dryly goes, Have you considered amputation? <laughs> Congrats on making me think of that one-liner. So we have Barbara trying to plan an escape, and we have these junior guys who were, who were there. What are they doing? Are they? they rescue them. <gasps> Who'd have thunk it? So this is uh, Jean and Jules. Kind of disappointed they didn't go down the Monty Python and the Holy Grail route of having an outrageous French accent. This wouldn't have been popular in France, right? So you wouldn't have really risked insulting them, right? No. So they get rescued, and then, then we cut back to the doctor, who is in a shop. Oh, I love this scene. Feels like classic skit comedy. I guess the best line in the entire serial right here. Price is no object, I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> I always loved that. You know, like we, we talked about in the previous serial where he, he stays to help, even though he doesn't have to, and how some people say that's when he becomes the doctor, but for me here where he's kind of just enjoying himself to me this feels like the doctor is kind of fully baked it also uh, implies the doctor is fully in control of the situation or at least has a pretty good plan on how to solve the problem he also clearly exactly. took a lesson from the sensorites he here and changed his his status by adding a sash well you know the french can't tell each other <laughs> apart either all those pointy heads look alike and they're also afraid of the dark Oh my god. 
I don't think we have any listeners in France yet, but if you are in France, hello. Hello, and we're sorry. Please, you can find us and tweet at us at Watches4D. <laughs> Please tell us if you are offended. So we kind of skipped the, the part where the jailer has left the keys in Ian's door. The jailer's so weird because after his intense creepiness with Barbara, he just degenerates into being a comedy figure. Like the rest of the episode, he's just completely incompetent. I think what they ended up doing is since we had, you know, kind of quote unquote master kind of figure who was actually running the jail, who was telling him what to do, they decided to play the, the one authority figure versus his incompetent servant. Absolutely. We do actually come back to Jules and Jean, who very quickly realise that someone's informing on them. And they are men of conscience, and they cannot allow other Frenchmen to go to the guillotine, and they will not rest until they've united the four people. What absolutely top chaps. That would have never happened. Absolutely not. They would not have guaranteed that all of them get together. Their thought, Their process, thought process would be, you know what, you know we what? got we you got guys in, you guys are good to go. We might try to look for your friends, but we're going to get you to safety first. That's 100% what it would have. Right. And then, just after they were talking about a potential traitor, this chap called Leon shows up. In no way foreshadowing anything. Timing at which he shows up is terribly convenient. And now we cut back to the doctor. And his hat. And his hat. God's glory. So we, here we have the doctor. He meets the jailer and then he meets Lemaitre. And it's kind of very obvious very quickly that Lemaitre is the real threat to the doctor and the doctor knows it. And that entire conversation is just very, very uncomfortable. And then we end the episode with the shopkeeper showing up at the jail and selling out the doctor. I mean, did no one see that coming? Oh, no, I did. Then again, I also saw Lemaitre's what happened to him coming, too. So, Yeah, from a mile off. Yeah. Subtlety is not really the name of the game in this story. Yeah, sometimes I wonder, though, like how the characters themselves didn't realize it. We're also a little bit jaded in terms of our entertainment compared to an audience in the early 1960s. I'll give in, I'll, I'll agree with that to a point. I mean, there are still some, I mean, don't ask me to pull them up now on the top of my head, but I'm pretty certain there are some episodes of television from the 60s that we, we would still today find very fresh and, and strong and not falling into a lot of these same problems. Oh, I agree. There's always some. I'm just saying, in general, it's, these, these, these have been mined pretty well. So, with the shopkeeper selling out the Doctor, we move into episode four, The Tyrant of France. So this is where we move from existing episodes into a run of two missing episodes. And I know the three of you all said you, you did the animation. What did you guys think of that in terms of the style and how it flowed? Did it work for you? Did you struggle with it? Did it jar from the live action pieces? So just to have any sort of like motion, even though lips were not connecting, not matching to voices or things like that, but just to get a sense of blocking and what was going on, it gets the job done. It's an interesting animation, animation style. style. Actually, Actually uh, there's a few elements of um, Studio Ghibli style in this. To a certain degree, some of the characters reminded me of some of the characters in that. They did at least get some things right. So like, they're, like the Doctor has a few little quirks 
you know, how he moves his head and things like that, that they actually did capture in the animation that I was actually impressed with. So, so not 100% not my style, style, but I, I, I enjoyed, enjoyed seeing the movement and blocking. If I remember correctly, they actually pioneered a type of animation for this by they they did some some kind of motion capture based on the existing episodes to try and get all of the inflections correct i liked it it was a little jarring at first just going from the live action to the animation and i thought the shadows on their faces were a little bit heavy but after a few minutes i just kind of forgot about it and it was right back into the story i really struggled with the animation the first time I saw it, so I decided to give it a miss. The way the characters moved, particularly their mouths, just really, I, I found really off-putting. I stuck with the loose cannon reconstruction and really, really enjoyed it. Let's move on to talking about The Tyrant of France, episode four. And we start off with the Doctor actually meeting the aforementioned Tyrant, or Citizen Robespierre. And we're immediately having the Doctor having to bluff over his region, since he's pretending to be a regional deputy. Robespierre, like any kind of tyrant, isn't that interested in hearing what the Doctor says and decides to talk about himself. But in talking about himself, he actually showed a little bit more depth of character than I was expecting. So that was, that was kind of interesting. I think this is the point where he was talking about he, he was lamenting the fact that he had to be killing so many people and all this other stuff. And I was just like, this is a, a little bit refreshing. So I thought that they gave him more depth than they had to. You're equally kind of left thinking, so why are you doing it? You have the power to stop this, dude. People aren't just going to behead themselves, Anthony. Come on. <laughs> Come on. True. Very true. He saw an end. He saw what he wanted the world to be. And he thought that the only way to do that was, was to make sure no one thought differently. Not a great reason, but it's the reason i love dictators you know during this whole thing don't know if anyone else kind of noticed this or whether this was obvious in the animation but the little subtitle i got in the reconstruction was lamaitre gives the doctor a knowing glance and it's like oh yeah he 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 knows the doctor's not who he says he is i don't know if that was something that came across to you guys after all of that, we cut back over to susan and barbara so susan's sick and danielle the the lady at the house gives Susan some brandy. Man, when I was Susan's age, I would have loved some brandy. <laughs> and there's like a weird interaction between her and Leon. Yeah. And yeah. then he continues to act weird because he actually has the weird interaction with Barbara after Danielle leaves. And it's just like, what is, what is his deal? Why is he so weird? I mean, foreshadowing. We all know why. And then Susan thinks that Barbara has a, a crush on Leon. And in my notes, I actually just have a line that just says, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> There's just a general lack of subtlety here. But also, in the meantime, Jean and Jules have uh, kidnapped Ian. So that's good. Sucks that they had to, you know, hurt Ian a little bit. Calm down, guys. But I get it. I'm counting that as a bludgeoning in this episode. From Ian's perspective, nothing will hurt more than having to be in six episodes of The Sensorites. <laughs> you shut your mouth. You shut your mouth. So I heard that Ian, as an actor replacement, wasn't actually filming for the entire time. That's true. He was on vacation for two episodes. But he was in, like, every episode. Yeah, they filmed him early and just cut him in at certain places. I wonder why they decided to do it with Ian and these and not necessarily with other characters and other serials. 
I think at this point they're getting a little more confident in the recording techniques. So if you think about it, in the Aztecs, Susan got a couple of little inserts when she was at the convent versus, you know, Hartnell, who was missing for a large part of the Keys of Marinus and Jacqueline Hill, who was missing for a large part of the Sensorite. So I think it's just a question of the team behind this, just feeling a little more comfortable with, with how they can make this and rather than having to do this live or virtually live, they can record bits and pieces and splice it together. I think with this, it was any scene where Ian was in the jail cell because they could just film that really quick and splice it in. I mean, that's basically the only standing set that is in all six episodes. Five out of six episodes, I should say. That's probably why. Speaking of the jail, we have the doctor trying to leave and Lemaitre being like, nah, not <laughs> happening. But, you know, the nice thing is we get more of the Doctor absolutely running rings around the Jailer. I feel so bad for the Jailer. I think it's at this point he says a line to the effect of, like, if I lose one more, <laughs> more, more prisoner, or I think he said, but two. <laughs> just like, I so like, oh, come on. He's just, he's just doing his job. Don't, don't make him. He's going to lose his head if he loses one more person. But at this point, he's like, no, no, I can't do that. I'm going to get executed. So he's not that much of an idiot. Right. And we have Lemaitre talking to the shopkeeper and basically paying him off. So there's, again, clearly something a bit weird about him. And then we cut to Ian and his lovely reunion with Barbara to come and snatch her away from the clutches of Leon. And they don't like it. So then they come up with a way to keep Ian separate from Susan and Barbara. Yeah, yeah. they're sending Susan and Barbara to the doctor. Well, not the doctor, but a doctor. And they've arranged for Ian to meet with Leon. Jules actually suggested that Leon might be James Sterling. And I'm just like, mm, I have my doubts. <laughs> I have my doubts on this, guys. Speaking of the physician that they send Susan to see, he was played by a gentleman by the name of Ronald Pickup, who actually goes on to have a really, really prestigious career and is still acting today. But in the meantime, he's been in things like he played Lord Randolph Churchill, so Winston Churchill's father, former Prime Minister William Pitt. He goes on to be in Never Say Never Again, the Bond movie. He's in The Hound of the Baskervilles. He's in a production of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And most recently, he's been in The Crown, the Netflix oh, show. Wow. He is still going strong today. And again, this is right at the beginning of his career. This is actually his first ever television role. This story's got kind of got some cool people in it who aren't famous yet. So... The doctor, in his role, is asked to question Barbara, leading us to the second reunion of the episode. And Ian has his meeting with Leon. It's a trap! That's pretty good. Thank you. Don will be signing autographs at various (laughs) conventions this year. (laughs) And so with that, we're into episode five, A Bargain of Necessity. Is there any way that Leon could be less of like a typical villain? seemed to follow all of the tropes and laying out all of his plans he was very hammy i think this counts towards the camp count yes i i would add i would add leon to the camp count he's very campy he has ian and handcuffs like to the ceiling like all those stereotypical things yeah again this is a story i wasn't that familiar with i mean i had seen it before but it's it's one that i hadn't seen that many times and i was like oh my god is the implication that ian's about to be tortured this is grim I thought it was going to get that way, and I was just like, oh boy, they're going to go there? But they did not. So we have that lovely little scene between Barbara and the Doctor where she expresses her regrets at going to see the physician. The Doctor's like, hey, don't worry, it's all worked out, we're all good. Did anyone else feel like 
that was a lot nicer than he would have been a couple of stories ago. Very much so. Absolutely. I think he'd be holding a grudge like, if you didn't force us out to look further, we wouldn't have been in this mess and blah, 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 like find some way to blame. Well, but what I also find interesting, though, is because he's had a little bit of up and down in you know, early episodes, he was cranky pretty much the entire time. We've had a few other instances where the doctor has been like kind of nice, but then at the beginning of this episode, he just wanted to kick him out. So he seems, seems to be waffling a little bit. He's not consistently written. Yeah. I think they just wanted to give a, a cliffhanger from the sensorites into this story and hadn't really figured out the minutia and how to deal with it and how to properly resolve it. So it's like, oh, only joking. With, I, I've got you home. Oh, crap. So then the doctor comes up with this plan that Barbara can just walk out of prison. Just walk out. And he's going to trick the jailer into releasing Susan. Or is he? No, not so much. <laughs> so we have all these scenes between Leon and Ian. Well, Leon's like, aha, I have always been loyal to the revolution. Again, is anyone surprised? I certainly wasn't. Wasn't that no. many scenes, because pretty soon after that, Jules shows up and takes care of the problem. Jules, man, comes in, guns blazing, and like he throws a gun at somebody. <laughs> <and just laughs> apparently, he's a great fighter. Like, I didn't see that one coming. I think that was probably the most surprising thing out of all of this was Jules just coming in and be like, I got this, guys. I'm by myself. Got it. It was a lot better than the man-on-man fighting that we normally get at the end. Yeah, it was really awesome. Again, I I think watching the uh, recon as opposed to the animation, I didn't get to see the flying gun. A little disappointing. See what you missed? The animation was... I know. I'll have to rewatch this this week with the animation. In the meantime, we also find out that Robespierre is very worried about a plot against him. Hmm, knowing what happens as being in the 21st century, I wonder who that could be. I guess we'll find out in episode six. Coming into it, I didn't know where we were during the Reign of Terror. I didn't know if it was at the beginning or the end. But then when it was talking about how he was worried about being indicted and everything, I was like, oh, this is the end. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's just no getting out of that. And so we cut to Ian and Barbara, who are reunited for the second time in two episodes. And Barbara is very upset about Leon's death. Which does not make any sense. He just about killed Ian. And she's upset about this other guy. Like, she's not worried that Ian almost died. So Ian, who she's been traveling with and she had taught with, as opposed to this guy that was creepily hitting on her that she's known for, like, an hour? Yeah. That, that Ian blowing her chances with a good man. But was he, though? I mean, eventually she comes around and says, look, I'm just so sick and tired of death. No shit, Barbara, you're in the French Revolution. Like, this was not a pleasant time in history, and you're a history teacher, you should know this. I feel like I've been singing her praises all season, and at this point, the writing for her just falls apart. Well, and keep in mind, though, I feel like it's only towards, like, these back half of the episodes of this serial where it gets a little inconsistent with her. So was it because of the change of director? It's the writing. I mean, we make fun of Susan a lot, but she is never worse than she is in the serial. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And actually, that's something that Lawrence Miles and Tat would talk about, uh, where they basically say they've completely run out of things to do with her. Now? Now they're, they've run out? They gave her a little bit in the sensor rights, I guess. Now the Doctor's taken center stage and is actually saving worlds without any coercion. Like, Susan's just on borrowed time. But speaking of Susan, the Doctor is attempting to rescue her again. 
And that's my segue yep. to add to the bludgeon count because yep. the doctor once again yeah. hit someone else over the head. But this one did not go as planned. No, it's sad because he's had a lot of practice in this series. I think he didn't have the right implement of hitting someone over the head. Like it wasn't a rock or a shovel. True, true. So he's basically confronted by Lemaitre, who shows him his ring and his original clothes and says, I've known you're not who you said you are the entire time. I've just let you be doing your, your own thing because I want you to do something for me. Hmm. I wonder who, which aforementioned character that we haven't met yet that he might be. With that, the doctor shows up at Jean and Jules' house. Do you think they own that place together? Is this a domestic partnership? <laughs> it's a little B&B, a playful little place. People go, it's got good ratings on Airbnb. I thought it was owned by Jules and his sister. Oh yeah, I think yeah. you're right. So Jean's just hanging out, but... So the doctor arrives with Lemaitre and he is accused of betraying them. Jacques. So cute cliffhanger. <laughs> Jacques. So with that, we're into episode six, Prisoners of Conciergerie, and back into live action, where we're very rapidly told that Lemaitre has come alone and unarmed, tells them he's been helping everyone all along, and claims that he is James Sterling. <gasps> Who saw that coming? I think it may have been the English accent. Not in this serial. Yeah. And, and what I love about this is there's no actual proof that he is James Sterling and everyone's just like, okay. I'm fine with that because then we got to move on to another example of putting Ian in a silling outfit. Oh, I love this. Hat. Yes. <laughs> so and, and, he, the, and he does some character work too, which is really yeah, so enjoyable. Blah, 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 spy stuff. Let's move on. Come on. We've got Ian in a hat. <laughs> So Ian and uh, Barbara go off to spy on a French official called Barras, who's meeting with someone to potentially overthrow Robespierre, and we get Ian and Barbara in funny outfits. And that accent? I just also love, I mean, that, I mean, Ian, like, really tries to sell it, not just the voice, but, like, even, like, his, his manners and his body movement, he, he really sells it. Did anyone else really love Barbara's outfit as well? I think Barbara looks stunning in just about everything that she wore in this serial. I mean, the, the wench outfit is so wonderfully frilly. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to the costuming department here. So Barris's guest shows up. Conveniently with his head covered. Yeah, and it's like, mm, I wonder who this could be. I wonder who's going to rule France next. What are the odds of Ina Barber being able to just recognize someone? It had to be someone extremely famous for that to happen. But wasn't he too tall? That's actually a myth. Yeah, apparently Napoleon was, what was it, 5'8"? Five, 5'7", eight? Five, five, eight, something like that. So, and I think the average American male now is 5'9", I think, is the average height. So... I think it's just weird to me because I'm 5'6", so it doesn't seem much taller than me. Yeah. He's not like Tom Cruise. He's taller than Tom Cruise. Napoleon, taller than Tom Cruise, nicer than Hitler. <laughs> you know, it's funny fact that at that time period, French towns for a unit of height used Tom Cruises. <laughs> Is that a little known fact, Cliff? Mm-hmm. Good to know. Okay, so they're talking about setting up a new government. Yep, where Napoleon will be one of three consuls. Yeah, right. For a little while. Yeah. <laughs> a very little while. Yeah, very little while. But what I love here is, A, Lemaitre knows enough about Napoleon to know he'll become the sole ruler. The audience also know this. And Barbara just laughs. 
she's clearly learned from her experience with the Aztecs and knows there's not a damn thing she can do about this. There's some progress here. Fixed points in time and all that kind of stuff and not being able to change history, not one line. Of course, we then see the downfall of Robespierre. So once again, the doctor shows up to the jail and runs rings around the jailer because that's the favorite thing he does. And he tricks the jailer into helping him and giving him the key to Susan's cell. So, you know, he's probably going to get executed. You got to feel for the guy. In the meantime, as they're leaving, Robespierre is brought in, having been shot in the jaw. That'll shut him up. <laughs> yeah. Was he actually shot before he was executed? I think he was. Incidentally, I know that Robespierre is really shown to be a tyrant in this story, but he did some good stuff. I mean, this is a little one-sided. He was responsible for the abolition of slavery in France, for example. He, he wasn't that terrible. He did some bad things, but he did some good things. And again, if we looked at the percentages of death, it was bad as we were led to believe. And the reign of not that terrible just isn't as good of a title. <laughs> <laughs> also true. So then Barbara is trying to explain to Sterling about where they need to be left. And he's like, I don't think they know where they're going. And then he made that excellent comment of, do any of us? Somebody took philosophy as a freshman in college. <laughs> I do actually love that line. I get the impression they don't know where they're heading. From the point of view of them. Yeah, it's very much, okay, they're, they're on their adventures now. They're just going to keep traveling until they get home, but they're no longer in a rush to do it. I really thought it was kind of awkward and just unusual. The horse carriage montage with the map behind it showing that they're going back to the TARDIS, that's not necessary. Just a little bit of production value there. Well, you could have put that towards something else. It's the very end of the season. They had budget left over. I love that ending line with, our destiny is in the stars, so let's go and search for it. That sends a shiver down my spine. Oh, it's great. All of them just seem in a very good mood. We see all of them. They're all laughing and cheering and starts moving towards the inspirational. It's, it's, a, it's a good wrap up. And so we're at the end of the Reign of Terror. We're at the end of season one, guys. We made it. Let's do our usual metrics. And we normally start with the Susan freakout count. So we were at 49 at the end of last story. For Reign of Terror, I, I counted four of them, mostly in the first two episodes. And then there was another kind of floating in there in the middle. So actually, the total is 44. As we got through the episodes, the number per episode, for the most part, went down. In our first episode, there was 2.25 freakout moments per episode. The lowest we got to was 0.25. That was in the Aztec. Which she was barely in. We ended with 0.66 in Reign of Terror. Overall, pretty much just one. One freak out of an episode. The final, for the final count for the season is 44. We've reduced our estimate down. Yeah, it's 44 um, with a total of 43 episodes. See, listeners, I told you there'd be more math. <laughs> the Ian murder count, surprisingly for a story that was so violent, doesn't go up this story. So disappointing. So the last time Ian killed anyone was in the Aztecs when he threw Ixta off, off the temple. So Ian ends the series with uh, a potential, and I say potential because some of them are questionable, of five murders. He really needs to pick up the pace. We also look at the camp count, and I know we talked about one instance in this story that everyone thought was kind of camp. Can someone remind me what that was? Leon. Leon. 
I'm going to throw the Jailer in as well, because I, I felt like that was just generally a very over-the-top performance. With, in the Sensorites, we, we ended with five, was the count to date at the end of the Sensorites. So add two to that, we're at seven for the season. So eight stories, seven camp count. So on average, just under one a story. So should we vote on the story? Yes, please. This week, let's start off with... Overall, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed it a lot more than I was expecting, especially with it being mostly a pure historical and having reconstructions in the middle of it. Most of my complaints are character-based. I feel they let Barbara down, and they really let Susan down. But the stuff with the, with the Doctor was really good. I enjoyed the story a lot more than I expected to. So I'm giving it eight bludgeonings out of ten. Whoa. All right. Julie. I'll agree. Although I love period pieces, usually no matter what, I, I really enjoy them. So I was really excited about this one. At that point, I really enjoyed, you know, the doctor's moments, the music far surpassed anything I could have hoped for. The animation was not as terrible as I was expecting it to be. It didn't take me out of it, but I do agree that Susan and Barbara were not as well-developed as I had hoped. So I'm going to do seven and a half glasses of wine out of ten. All right. Riley? I'm never a fan of historical period pieces because I, I <laughs> like we discussed about because <laughs> like like was discussed, I, I just don't like the game of like, oh, look at that secondary actor we casted to play this famous person through history. You know, it's just... And and I, it doesn't it, it constricts constricts you too much of what you can do in an episode. I mean, that being said, outdoor filming was enjoyable. As we've already mentioned, the music was very enjoyable. And once again, I feel like this is another episode that suffers from being a bit padded. I mean, we could probably have you know tightened it up a little bit, maybe gone four episodes or five. The, the only and truly enjoyable parts I had were the first two and a half episodes to three episodes. And then after that, in my opinion, the only thing you need to see is to catch the ending scene of the TARDIS crew and the TARDIS, you know, given a wrap up of the season and everything else happens from three episode three to that point is just not really that wonderful. And it's kind of blah. So I give it uh, only three pimp hats out of four out of 10. Wow. All right, that was lower than I was expecting. So from my perspective, this this is one story I found I really um, reevaluated from my last time of watching. And I found I really enjoyed it. It had a lot going for it. I loved the introduction of the humor. I loved the Doctor all throughout. I, I think I said when we did the Aztecs that I had previously struggled with pure historicals, but I think the last time I saw this, I was probably in my early to mid-20s, and, and I think in my early 30s, I've matured a little and have um, learned to enjoy this kind of drama. So for me, taking into account all the merits, the various bits and pieces of this that I found really enjoyable, I'm going to give this seven and a half sashes out of ten. So I'm in alignment with Julie. So we've wrapped up season one. 
So let's let's do an overview before we call it a day. The format I want to do for this is, as a season one kind of roundup is we're going to have a little bit of a, a kind of Q&A on things that we thought were the best stories, the worst stories, the best moments, the worst moments. And then I've averaged out some statistics, which I'll provide at the end. So completely subjectively, since I doubt anyone remembers their exact scores, but just going on gut feeling, I would like to know what everyone's favorite story of the season was. So we'll start with Riley, then Julie. Julie goes, then Don goes, then I go. I'm, I'm not going to rank them, but I, I'll just tell you, looking back, the ones that I enjoyed the most were, of course, the Daleks, Keys of Marinus, the Sensorites. I also enjoyed Unearthly Child because it's the first one and you just, you know, it sets everything up. Marco Polo, the Essex, and Reign of Terror are not my favorites. I think the Aztecs and Marco Polo are more enjoyable than the Reign of Terror. Um, I don't know why. I feel like there's just more more room for the characters, and I think Reign of Terror suffers from having maybe too many new uh, you know characters just for the serial. Um, and Edge of uh, the Edge of Destruction is enjoyable too. Um, that I would rate higher than Marco Polo or the Aztecs, the Reign of Terror, because it's truly kind of a it would fit better as a middle episode, like a kind of a mid-season cliffhanger or or change to the dynamic of the show because i feel like that episode is very important because it's such a character-driven episode because it's bottle that's my feeling of the first season is just you know three very very good enjoyable fun crazy stories a couple of historicals that are yeah okay and then unearthly child and the edge of destruction which are very important so if you had to choose one as the best and one as the worst what would you pick for the best i would probably go with i think i'm going to go with the keys of meredith the story is just so varied and there's just so much going on there's some character moments it just it jumps all around and i feel like if i choose the daleks it'd be too much of an easy choice worst episode is it's kind of a battle between marco polo and reign of terror i think i'll give marco polo yeah i'd i'd say reign of terror is is my least favorite all right Julie. I love going after Riley because of our differing opinions about period pieces. So I just find that rather funny. I am really sad because I feel like if we had all of the visuals for Marco Polo, it could have been my favorite, but there were some key aspects missing there. Plus it was a longer serial. There was a seven episodes, so they could have tightened it a bit. So I actually think I'm going to go with my favorite being the Aztecs. I thought story length was right. There were some key moments with the doctor in that one. There were some key moments with Barbara. Barbara was really strong in that. And hey, look, we only had one dramatic moment with Susan. So so we kind of blocked out on that one. Daleks would be a little easy because, you know, it's the Daleks. But again, that suffered from that seven episode arc that could have been tightened up a bit. And my least favorite is the Sensorite, hands down. <laughs> I don't think I have to go into all of that. I don't think any of us are surprised by that. <laughs> Don, over to you. If I had to pick my favorite, not necessarily the best, but the one that was my favorite, it would have to be the Keys of Marinus. It was the most fun. It kept moving. You had good character moments. It was just a really good package. Followed up, I that would probably be the Aztecs. That makes sense. As far as least favorite, it'd have to be the Sensorites. God, come the on. Sensorites has, okay, <laughs> the Sensorites is frustrating because it has some good ideas, 
but it never cooks them all together properly. It just throws its spaghetti in the hot water and dumps it out before it's done cooking. It's it's not ready. That's why it was ripe for being, you know, having those ideas pulled out and made into the oud later on because they weren't done correctly the first time. Yeah, it's almost like a missed opportunity piece. I'm glad that someone took that and made it into something better. I mean, a few more rewrites, and it probably it, it could have been one of the best episodes of the season, if not the best. But they didn't take that time, and so it suffers. I completely agree with you. So when it comes to my ratings of the season, for me, the best story was the Daleks. I wouldn't say that's hands down. The Aztecs came close, and honestly, the Reign of Terror came very close for me as well. But... The Daleks just felt so iconic. It has a lot of tension in it. And then it combines that with an adventure story that's kind of B-movie-ish. And I just found myself really, really enjoying it. Admit it. You're just in it for the sex pants. I am just in it for the sex pants. And so your least favorite then, Anthony? Riley, please don't kill me for saying this, but uh, <laughs> the sense rights. None of you. None of you are allowed to come to the sense sphere. None of you. <laughs> so for, for me, the, the, I'll build on what Don said about... You better watch some... out. I'm going to be putting some deadly nightshade in all your drinks. <laughs> um, but I'm going to build on what Don said. and that There were a lot of good ideas there, and they weren't properly cooked. And then it's absolutely killed by the pacing. It really is for me. And I, it's certainly the story I struggled with the most. That was reflected really by i think of everything we've watched this season that was the one that took me the longest to watch through it and that includes seven episodes of pure reconstruction of marco polo so it, it just wasn't for me with that i've also gone ahead and compiled all of our scores throughout the season and averaged them out by story so i can tell you the story that received the best score, the best average score from us was The Keys of Marinus with an average of 7.88. And unfortunately, the least popular, I think, Riley, after hearing three of us absolutely slate it, you probably won't be surprised here. It's The Sensorites, which had an average rating of 4.25. 4.25. Gang it up on me. Julie gave that one a three. And Don and I both gave it... No, Julie gave it a four, sorry. And Don and I both gave it a three. So you pulled it up with your rating of seven. But um, <laughs> that was not a popular story. <laughs> I've actually averaged out everyone's total season score. But before I announce that, what was your favorite moment? And what was your least favorite moment? So was there something that you found yourself really like, yeah, that was awesome. And then something where you were like, Oh my god, that was awful. So again, let's let's do the same order. So we'll start with Riley. Alright, for something awesome, I don't know why it's stuck in my mind. I I loved the set design and the blocking for in the keys of Marinus when they're in the ice cave and the knights are surrounding one of the keys. I don't know. I mean it's a classic kind of I don't know what you would call that kind of setup, like a board game or something in that manner of just like maybe an Indiana Jones kind of thing where like there's what you want, the relic that you're looking for and you can see the trap is laid out and how to get past the trap and get it and move on. And that was really enjoyable. Um, I don't know why with the visuals of that, just the idea of putting knights in a ice cave is just wonderfully abstract and eccentric and interesting to me. And I, I, I like that type of imagery. Least favorite. It would be hearing our reviews of the sensor rights. 
<laughs> um, oh, and I will give you a, I'll give you a second moment. I, I really, uh, and I hit on it when we talked about the sensor rights, I really enjoyed the cliffhanger of the visual of the last part of episode one of the sensor rights when Ian is looking through that porthole window and he sees the little sensor right there. I just think that's a really good kind of like shock moment. Yeah. Least favorite. <sighs> Least favorite, I would have to say, would be I'm kind of disappointed that an unearthly child, like for the very first serial, I never liked the idea that it took place like, you know, Dawn of Man kind of thing. I don't know why. I just feel like that just doesn't work. That's more interesting to, to come to later. I, don't, I just feel like, you know, for this show and what it, you know, is meant to be, to have the very first adventure be the Dawn of Man just, I don't know, just seems kind of like limited and, and, and myopic. That's fair. Julie? It's always difficult, but I think one of my favorite moments was in Marco Polo and in the Singing Sands episode, there's a moment with Susan and Tinko. They're talking about the moon and the desert and they passed the Bechdel test. And it's not just because they passed it, but I think I just love seeing two young female characters written well considering how they're typically written throughout you know the rest of uh the season yeah the young female characters just don't get a lot to work with and that one i just thought was a very lovely moment between two people i really enjoyed again the music from reign of terror it stood out so much that i just kept talking about it um, in all of my notes, and so just the music in general was great. My least favorite, I think, is the entirety of the expedition episode in the Dalek. Just the entire, the entire episode can just go away, and it would be fine. Fair enough. I mean, we we definitely talked about at the time how awfully padded that story was. So I don't blame you for saying that. That's Probably something that they could have wiped when they were deleting episodes and no one would really miss it. So I take extensive notes while I, you know, watch these episodes. I have four notes from that episode, and one of the notes is totally a filler episode. So <laughs> <laughs> that Fair shows enough. you my thoughts. Don, over to you, my friend. I'm not very good at picking favorites and least favorites, but I did have a few good moments I really liked. I Probably my favorite was in the Edge of Destruction with Susan and her scissors. Mm. I'm not even being... The iconic scissoring I'm scenes. I'm not even being funny. I, I thought it was nice to see them give Carol Ann Ford something to do, and she did it well, and she was extremely creepy and off-putting, and I like that. I also really liked the brains in jars in the case of Marinus. They made me happy. So that <laughs> I'm not going to go too much with the least favorite. So I mentioned something from the sensorites. I think Riley would punch me. <laughs> so I'm going to go with most disappointing moment, which was at the beginning of Marco Polo when it wasn't a Yeti. It was just a regular oh, yeah, because even though I knew what the name of the serial was, I didn't think they were going to. I, I, I had hopes, you know, it was very cool, but it felt like a bait and it switch. Really did. I was I was not happy with that. That's fair. So I'll wrap up and I've given well the rest of you've been talking some thought to this. And initially I was like, well, maybe the plunger 
at the end of episode one of the Daleks would be my favourite. I felt that was iconic. I thought maybe, you know, the Doctor's comedy moments in the Reign of Terror, or maybe even just the video game nature of the Keys of Marimus, but no. I am going with John Ringham's extremely over-the-top performance as Taloxel <laughs> in the Aztecs as my favourite thing of the entire season. Doesn't mean I think it's the best thing, oh, but it's wow. certainly my favourite thing. Well, he did leave a lasting impression, that's for sure. Exactly. And as my least favourite, and Riley once again have my apologies, but <sighs> it's the notion that the sensorites all look the same. <laughs> it was a close one between that and and the the hunter from the keys of marinus who you know i i found incredibly uncomfortable as a character and i oh, definitely yeah. dimmed that, the story over that, that but uh, in the sensor it's just that entire concept I, I i just found remarkable that they got away with so let me surprise you all with your overall ratings don and riley you guys did things a little differently to me and Julie. You divided the very first serial up into two when you were giving your rankings. So you guys, I, I didn't weight those rankings in any way. So you have had your total score divided by nine to get an average, whereas Julie and I have only had ours divided by eight. The way this shakes out is apparently the one of us who enjoyed the season the most was Don. Uh, <laughs> your average score came out at 6.89. The person who enjoyed it the least was actually Riley. Oh, don't get me wrong, people. I do love Doctor Who. Don't, don't hate me. <laughs> uh, your average was 6.44. Okay, that's not so bad. And you were really brought down by your four rating on the Aztecs and your three rating on the Reign of Terror. Yeah. Bluntly, we all ranged in the six to seven range overall. Julie and I actually ended up with the same rating of exactly 6.5. Once you kind of take our story average for every single story and average that out, we end up with a group average of 6.52. I think that says this was a, a decent start. I mean, it, it didn't end up as being less than five. I predict that I will have the highest average score for season two. That, that doesn't mean they're all like the sensorites, does it? <laughs> yeah, I don't mean that. that so I quit. I'm not going to tell you which one, <laughs> but there is one story which I think Riley will give a 10 to that the rest of us will probably struggle with. But I'm not going to say which, ones because I, which one because I don't want to set expectations. How many period pieces are there? Three. We have two pure, pure historicals and our first historical with a science fiction element. So um, we will have the Romans, we will have the Crusade, and we will have the Time Meddler, which is set in 1066 with someone messing with time. That one's awesome. So three out of the nine are period pieces. And we have one that is set on contemporary Earth, and then the rest are all in the future. Yes! Slightly less balanced but between period pieces and sci-fi, but um, I'm going to say that one of the two period pieces is one of my favorite Hartnell stories. I think we're in for a treat next time. So with that, we have wrapped up our review of Reign of Terror. We have wrapped up our season one roundup. Thank you if you've listened all the way through with us. We appreciate you. And we will be back with the beginning of season two very shortly when we take on the planet of giants. We hope to have you then. 
You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Villapak, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Taller Than Tom Cruise, Nicer Than Hitler, was recorded on Monday, February the 11th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And always remember, not all jailers are as stupid as the one in this story. Do not attempt the Doctor's shenanigans should you ever find yourself incarcerated. They probably won't work, and you'll end up in more trouble.